0: That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football.
2: Hello and welcome to the Lobe Strangers, a Swindon Town fan podcast with me, Rich Pullen.
0: Rodgers is streaking ahead and he's onside. What a good shot. <laughs> oh, it's the goal. Michael's post for Shearer. Goal. Oh, now that's Steve White. Touched to Mitchell. It's another goal. Incredible. Huddle. Taylor has scored. And that surely means it's the Premier League for Swindon Town now. But first, goal by Jan D'Orton. Park Austin, go again. Oh, I we win this league
2: anyway, Richard. He's hit it. it's oh, fluid! Hello and welcome to the Low Strangers podcast. Thanks as always for listening. The final few episodes of 2018 will involve guests from previous episodes returning for another installment. The first returnee and my guest for this episode is journalist Sam Moreshead whose last appearance back in early October is, to date, the most listened episode of The Love Strangers. This is a Q&A episode, so every question posed to Sam are listeners' requests. But said questions have been merged into one conversation, and a big thanks to all of those who pose questions via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the Town Forum. In no particular order, those listeners were Gareth from London, Ben Nichols, Jack Tanner... Phelpsy Boy, Tans, West Coast Wizard, Freddie STFC, Red Rag, Bamboo No Shoe, Max Springer, Bogus Dave, JJ, Rich B and Frigby Dazer. Thank you ever so much for your questions. Anyway, it's time to sound the hooter for the Low Strangers podcast. Enjoy. <laughs> I'm very happy to be back. <laughs> uh, how does it feel to be the most listened episode of the Low Strangers podcast as of yet?
3: I'm a bit worried for your uh, listeners, to be honest. <laughs> uh, um, I'm I'm honoured as well. At the same time, obviously, it was a it was an interesting period that I was there for, and people are interested. But there are many people that you've had on your fantastic show since and before who deserve more uh, more attention than me. I think.
2: The format for this is that you are going to be answering the questions of listeners. None of these questions are from me. I asked everything that I wanted to know in the episode. So, the first question we have for you, Sam, is How are you finding covering cricket to football, and what are the similarities and differences?
3: Well, first of all, cricket was what I wanted to get into um, at the end, at some point in my career. From the moment that I got out of uh, out of university, so um, being in it is is a great thrill, and being part of a project of the cricketer, which is is new and building and developing, is is a wonderful experience. So I'm very happy where I am at the moment. Um, in terms of the similarities and differences, I think uh, it's football is a much bigger world. There's a lot more people. Uh, there's a lot more people that you need to know, even when you're covering a local club compared to when you're in a in a national outlet for for cricket. Um, you've got to you've got to know a lot more people in football and you've got to keep up with a lot more trends um cricket is a different pace uh it's got a lot of different people in it um don't get me wrong there is there's still just as trying and just as taxing so to, to run a website um but it's just it's just a very different atmosphere among the game you, you have different kinds of, of people in it um so i think that lends itself for good things and bad things you know you in football, you've got a story a second, whereas in cricket, some days there does seem to be a story a second. But some days you've, you've got to go looking and you've got to find other ways of populating your website, for instance. But um, I think they're, they're two very, very different sports, as we all know. Anyone who watches both of them knows. Um, I'm, just, I'm delighted to have got a chance to work in both of them. Um, I don't think now I want to go back to football. I think I'm quite happy to stick with cricket for the rest of my career. But um, they're very different and they're both very enjoyable.
2: Who are the most approachable
3: when interviewing, cricketers or footballers? I don't think it's fair to generalise. Um, <laughs> I think uh, there are some cricketers that are much more approachable than some footballers and there are some footballers who are much more approachable than some cricketers. Um, if you were to say as a group, how many, uh, what percentage were approachable for footballers and for cricketers? I, I, I mean, cricket is a lot easier to talk directly to the players involved than football is um that's probably just simply because football is is ahead of the curve in terms of its uh sponsorship uh, and commercial obligations Cr- cricket does have it but lower down when you get into the county game you'll find that players are more willing to to voice your, their opinions directly to you and talk directly to you than maybe footballers in say league one or the championship or whatever, um, where they're much more directed by by PR guidelines, brand guidelines, etc. I mean, it still exists in cricket, um, mm. and you, you still have to deal with it in that respect. And you get a lot of get a lot of your content, your interviews, etc., because of um, relationships with brands and their PR people. Um, but it just seems a little bit less cautious than football in terms of being open and and being willing to. Discuss things more openly, not just with, not just with uh, members of the press, but also with members of the public, etc. So, I think you know there are footballers who are always willing to chat, and many of them are. Um, but I would still say that footballers are probably naturally more reserved than cricketers because they have more commercial obligations by and large. Not not just necessarily any given cricketer compared to any given footballer, but overall there's more brand awareness there uh and more nervousness on the part of the football club than compared to the to the county when it gets to, to national level i think it's fairly similar though there's not a huge amount of difference what
2: have <laughs> your highlights been right. thus far uh in your cricket journalist career
3: In you know cricket journalist well i mean it's only it's only uh, well, a year and a bit old so um there's not a huge amount to to write home about there i'm learning learning the trade of Essentially, after spending a decade in football and making the contacts that I need to make and uh, and getting getting a foot in the door, uh, it was a huge thrill to cover a test match for the, at Lords for the first time in May when Pakistan came. Um, that was something that I'd wanted to do since I was 12 years old. It was covering covering England international cricket and covering Swindon Town were two um, massive career goals of mine when when I was you know, writing terrible match reports in my bedroom at age 12. So. Um, to be there among some like real playtons of the cricket journalism industry in the Lords Media Centre it May was, was something really special. You know, you look to one side and there's Mike Atherton, you look to another side, there's Nasser Hussain, and you've got some of the, the best cricket writers in the country around who, who aren't ex-pros as well, some of the best cricket journalists around. Um, and that that was uh, a feeling of of belonging, even though only slightly, because I've got a long way to go before I can prove that I belong in this industry. And um, that that was something really special and meant a lot to twelve year old me, as much as it did <laughs> to thirty one year old me. Um, so that's probably the highlight. But you know, I've got to go to a lot of test matches, a uh, one day one day internationals, T Twenty finals day. I see some fantastic cricket this year, um, and to be paid to to cover the game that you most love playing and most love watching is just a real joy so that's only one year in i hope there's another goodness knows how many i don't think we're ever going to be able to retire oh he's really um, <laughs> looking at the same the country as he's going to go so 40 50 years however <laughs> i'm quite happy now to um
2: to go on uh, doing this so yeah it's been a wonderful first year given your extensive career covering quite a few clubs across different sports What's the best run operation you've come across, and why? What could Swindon Town's current owners and management learn to take <laughs> us forward? Right. Okay, that's a huge question. You know. Hey, I just okay. read them out.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the best run. Oh, cracky! Um, I've come across some really good and really well-run places in the past uh, past decade. I'll try and pick out one from, from the top. The, the number of clubs that I covered in the championship when I was with the Press Association were very good. It's going to sound awful, this, but Bristol City. Yeah. Um, Bristol City had a, um, had a communications guy who recently left there after a long time serving a guy called Adam Baker. And their operation under him was, was really slick and smooth. And they knew uh, how to react in real time to developing situations. They knew how to deal with their local press. Um, they knew how to defuse tough topics, um, and they generally managed to come back quickly on on any questions that you had, in, in a way that made you feel as though it was a collaborative process. Um, so they're really good um, in that particular instance. I, I don't know today whether it's the same uh, since Adam left, but that was that was a really good, a really really good operation. Uh, it does pay me to say it. Um, and. I mean, in the cricketing world, there's a number of counties that that do very well um, that get their information out and push ideas to you uh, and come actively to you with uh, ideas for interviews and promotional opportunities using their players. People like Lancashire, Lancashire's quite good. uh, Sussex, they're good. Um, There's just a way of doing it which makes it feel as though they're helping you and you're helping them. And it's, it's all collaboration. Uh, and then when there is a tricky question, they don't shirk it or ignore it um, or lie to you, which is probably the worst thing, um, which ha- had happened to me at Swindon. I, I was directly lied to. And then the story would pop out at a diff- in a different outlet um, moments later. So that, that's the sort of thing that you don't want to experience um, because it makes you not want to trust a club's operation um, and that then translates itself into you giving the club coverage which has a negative slant and therefore maybe affecting the um, the feelings of fans about it so there there are some good ones that I've dealt with um, and there are some bad ones I, I, don't, I honestly don't think that Swindon's is the worst uh, they, they, people like Tom Otrevsky and, uh, and Chris Tan had a really tough time so as we talked about in the last time that, that I came on your show um, so so that's uh, that's a bit different but uh, they weren't the worst but there are there are many others to be the best um, you asked about what I would change right now mm. is that right and what
2: what could they what could the current uh, owners management learn in order to take us forward
3: and you're talking from a PR point of view I, would or... say,
2: I, I mean I would say given the question that would that would probably be the way to go down
3: yeah sure um what do I think they can do I think in some sense, they have the underlying idea right, in that they've got to create a load of decent content on their own outlets, on their own platforms. But at the same time, they've got to be open and willing to talk about issues with independent media. But a real issue in that they appear to, and I don't know whether it's true, they appear to always have favoured one outlet under the current um, regime, and. I don't know whether that's because they've had rights agreements with them or whether it's just because those journalists who work for that outlet are the other ones who best get on with the people in charge. Um, but it, it always makes me a little bit anxious when they're not willing to talk more to other outlets. That has started to change. I've seen Clem Morfuni was talking before Owen left the advertiser um, and he was willing to speak to him more. And hopefully that goes on. Uh, I don't claim to know anything about Clem. Um, I've never met him, and I have I only heard heard of him very briefly towards the end of my time that I was there in, in relation to the club. But he does seem to at least have an active involvement, which Mr Power seems to almost have none of anymore. So maybe they are changing things like that. It's just a willingness to be open and take the criticism, you know? I mean... It's a a critical friend is what all local media should be to their club, particularly at Swindon's level. Um, And Swindon are having to adjust to themselves being a new level now and a level which hopefully we don't stay for very long, but, you know, it could be at least three seasons worth of it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's it's taking a step back and understanding where you are, what your stature is, what your status is and how everyone in the local community can pull together and help and then how you can help yourselves by helping them. So, um, you know, it, there are signs that it might change, be it through the, the way in which they've been working with the Trust recently, um, through the more openness of Clem Morphine to talk to, to outlets. Uh, I think a lot of the social media content seems to be starting to hit the right sort of level with fans, whereas it, it was a little bit juvenile, a little bit tacky, maybe six months ago. Um, if they can get that right and get, you know, the stuff that they which uh, I follow, right, or through the the player stuff. You know, it's it's all about making sure that the product that you're giving out is value for money for the consumer, and then liaising with your local media to to make it value for money for both the media and for the people who are who are reading that. There, so um, I think they're doing right now, but unfortunately, they're kind of hamstrung by the fact that the team has been fairly crap, and we're in a pretty dreadful situation football-wise.
2: Do you miss any elements of Covering Swindon? Yeah, all of it.
3: All of it. it was, covering Swindon was the best time of my life professionally, and I miss all of it all the time. It's just not something that, from a career perspective, I could have done um, for my whole life and, and got what I wanted out of my career. So uh, I, I miss the interaction with fans. Uh, I miss the chasing story leads every day to try and fill a back page. Um, At the other I um, miss the interaction with the people around the club who makes Win in Town what it is uh, from the tea ladies um, right the way up through the ground staff, uh, the players, the management. Um, I even, even do miss the interactions with, with people in the boardroom uh, and trying to be the person who got the story out that they didn't necessarily want to be got out or the story that uh, maybe a rival was trying to get out and we got there first when you're in such a small community like that it's there's a real sense of togetherness um a competitive togetherness in the media and, and i miss that a bit um so yeah i i miss all of it but there's no way i could have uh stayed there and got what i wanted out of my career as a whole so uh that that's basically the equation that that presents itself it was a wonderful wonderful job um and I would advise it to any young journalist starting out to go and sharpen their teeth in, in local media and, and learn their learn the skills there. Um, but at the same time, I'm very happy with where I've got to now.
1: Perry on the ball. He's got Ward with him. Timing of the pass is crucial. A touch and shoot. Yes! You bet! You bet! 2-0 Swindon!
2: It's a serious one now. Yeah, um, <laughs> all newspapers have an angle. Having worked on the Daily Mail sports desk and seen the criticism that the Mail Online face over headlines and articles with people accusing them of racist undertones and some of it being well, blatant racism, do journalists have a struggle ethically to accept certain jobs within the industry? Oh, that's a
3: That's a big question. Do journalists have a struggle ethically to accept certain jobs. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that some journalists do have uh, ethical issues and wouldn't go for jobs in certain places and some other journalists wouldn't go for jobs in some other places maybe because of ethics, maybe because of politics. Um I mean I, I can't speak for every single journalist working in the UK in terms of who they would work for and who they wouldn't work for. I know some people who think that no one should work for the mail or, or the sun, for instance, um, because of some of the stuff that they've pushed out on their front pages and the, and the front of the paper. Um, I can understand why they would think that um, at the same time, the mail as a sports entity is, is quite a prestigious paper it's won the National Sports uh, Journalist Association's Newspaper of the Year for Sport many, many times in recent years. It's widely revered. It's got some of the finest sports journalists in the country working for it. Uh, they uncover major stories ranging from football to cycling, to all kinds of stuff in the Olympic Games, to uh, the bullying issues re- revolving around any Aluko. Uh, uh, they push pushed the agenda great deal on all kinds of issues at the back of the book um the disassociation between front and back pages is sometimes a difficult one to make and sometimes the lines might appear very blurred particularly when it comes to mail online and the fact that it appears to be one individual entity whereas in reality there are multiple desks being controlled by multiple editors who all have their own uh independent reasons for wanting things to be published or headlined in certain ways um, I think there's nuance to this that is easily and understandably lost um, and I think that the mail online is a bigger entity than people understand and the dynamics of it are more convoluted than people understand um, and it's it's very tricky because I had this conversation on Twitter about uh, maybe three months ago with a journalist called Daniel Story. who's a very fine journalist who works for Football 365 who've been pushing the case of the media's ill-treatment of Raheem Sterling for months, if not years. And um, it's a conversation that is very hard for those who try to explain what they think as a nuance because you can almost immediately get shot down for it, without being able to explain your point of view, um, I think that some of the articles that have been published about Raheem Sterling uh, in various publications, and not just the Mail Online, are are racist. They they take a racist edge, but I'm not saying that all of them are. And I would certainly say that you can tell where some uh, stories have come from in terms of the desk in which they've been published, compared to others. It's it's so I, I find it hard just to to explain in this where it's just me talking to you, Rich, because mm-hmm. it requires it requires a lot of understanding about uh, the industry as well um, and the way in which the mail operates, um, because there are parts of working for the mail which a large percentage of those people who were on the sports desk with me when I was there. Uh, they didn't like but at the same time it is a hugely reputable sporting publication, a paper of record in sport um, which has some of the country's finest sports journalists writing for it so anyone who was working there would have been quite happy to be working there, there's no one no one there who was there under duress mm-hmm. um, and we had certain stories which we disagreed with um, in terms of why are we covering this. Um, but if you're there and you're on that desk, you've got an obligation to. You're told by an editor that you're covering this story. You're going to write. You're going to write about it. You can't say no. I mean, that's where you have to quit if you don't want to do it anymore. Um, but for me, writing about—I don't think I ever had had a, a Rahim Sterling. Already put to me, uh, thinking about. I've, I've thought about this several times, and I don't think I ever did. Um, but I've worked alongside some of the people who have, and one or two have been quoted in various threads over the last 24 or 48 hours. Um, and you know, I'm a I'm a 31 year old white guy from a private school background, so I understand the position of privilege that I come from, and therefore there is an argument that I can't really say no it's not racist um but all the questions that i've asked of myself over the past well it's three years i guess since i started started working for the mail whenever these issues came up was uh, am i facilitating racism um by working for this newspaper and i couldn't come to the i couldn't come to the conclusion that i ever was um of course, other people will argue otherwise, but it's just its, it's very detailed and very nuanced. Um, and it's, it is is more complicated than, yes, that paper is racist, and no, that
2: paper's not racist. Next question. What's the worst bit of editing you've been on the receiving end of? Oh, in terms of when I was working for the mail. It's, well, um, it
3: can't, be, any, it can't no. be anywhere else, actually, to be fair, because... Uh, the the advert when we have a desk of, of five people, we were all uh, editing and proofing each other's work, and very little got changed without a big conversation. Sure. Um, I mean, to know that you have to understand how the process works at a place like the Mail Online, which is they have uh, they have a desk which has um, around about forty people working on the sport on the sports desk. Um, of that, around 15 or 15 will be in at any one time for reporters, uh, and then there are two what we would call revised men who are effectively sub-editors. Now, stuff gets published before it gets revised at the mail. Um, that's a necessity of modern digital publication. So, you might see that a story is in one form for 20 minutes, then changed a bit, then changed a bit by someone else, then changed a bit later. I never had a story where I was it went, at any point where it was ripped to pieces, um, turned around and repackaged. But that's the sports desk, and I can't speak for what happens on the news desk, which is a, a desk that's many times the size of the sports desk, and is actually on the in the Mail's case, where a number of these stories come from, which have been picked up on social media. You'll notice the difference because of the colour of bar. At the top of the screen uh, so if it's green bar with the mail's branding it's a sports article it would have come from the sports desk it would have been dished out by the sports editor and by the sports news editor if it's under a blue bar it comes from the news desk and that comes from a different sports as uh, different news editor and a different overall editor um, that means that it will have different ideas about how headlines should look what emphasis sh- should be on them lots of this will take place because of how their audience is reacting on the homepage. Uh, will be done by the SEO editor who will be looking at trends that people are searching for. Um, It will be done by how they know their audience to react. So you'll see a very marked difference between headlines that are published under the green banner, which is the sports banner, compared to headlines which are published under the blue banner, the news banner. And that's one of the nuances that I'm talking about here. It's it's not just custom drives not all one editor, one even one desk of editors who are the same every day. It's several different banks of editors through several different banks of sports or news editors, and then through several different banks of writers. And at the end, you have inconsistencies because there will be stories about Raheem Sterling in uh, in the sports desk, which might even be replicated in the news desk because they see it as getting their own uh, their own numbers for their part of the site. So you might have the the same story covered twice, and if that happens, sometimes you'll see one story being overwritten with a completely different story, and the URL being changed, etc. It's it's a it's a big, complicated machine at Mail Online, which involves hundreds and hundreds of people, um, and that's why you can see large discrepancies in the way in which articles are styled and headlines are styled. Remember the writer at the mail online, the reporter in the initial instance writes all of their headlines. They are then subsequently potentially changed by sub editors or editors depending on the way in which they want the story to be put, uh, put across as in sold to the Mm -hmm. reader. So it is really not just a simple writer does this. It's his name on it. He's however racist or not racist you want to call it. Um, It's really complicated, Rich. It's uh, it's a huge machine and uh, parts of what Mail do I disagree with, but at the same time, they are an incredibly successful website. Um, So there we have an ethical problem about how far should news go just to tap in to the existing prejudices and thoughts of its readership um, and how much should it be asked to challenge them. And then we have to backtrack that into, well, how well are they going to do commercially if they challenge them compared to how well are they going to do commercially if they continue to, to play the fiddle the way that they've been used to? Um, There's many questions. I think it goes back a long way. And I think it's a, it's a big debate that has to be had properly and you know, considerately and calmly and, and not just be blown into a wild fluster after a matter of seconds. But that, unfortunately, is what would happen um in the current climate and i understand why i mean we look at look at what happened at Stamford bridge on um on saturday night that that has to be fueled that sheer ridiculous anger that venom that vial from that um the 50 year old guy and mm-hmm. he was wearing a shirt and a decent jumper and a jacket Turns over towards sterling as though he's just he's got a demon inside of him um And that's got to come from somewhere. I mean, historically, football has had it and it tried to get rid of it. And in part, it's been successful, but it's had to be incubated somehow. So yes, we do have to accept that potentially the media has played a part in it. But it's not just so easy as to blame the media, it's to blame how the media works and to think how can we rejig the media and how as a society can we make the media work better so that ethically we're not... Pose with this situation going forwards quite as horribly as we as we were at the weekend, and, and obviously with the banana incident with Aubameyang at Arsenal as well. Um, I, I mean, I could talk for for ages about this without ever coming to an answer. You can hear me going <laughs> round in circles. Is I have. No particularly strong view on whether or not the media is to blame because I, I've worked in it. I've worked right in the middle of the, one of the main uh, proponents of what people are saying is the problem. And I didn't feel as though the people that I work with, most of which are left-leaning uh, fair, or fairly liberal people politically, I didn't feel that any of them had an agenda. We weren't being told at the start, at the start of a day, today we're going to target Rahim again. Mm you know that that conversation never happens um so i don't have i don't have the view that the media is inherently racist but people will argue that i'm not seeing the the detail and that maybe that way i'm subconsciously racist myself i don't know that's how complicated this is and you have to be able to have a a proper conversation about it and not just throw throw a tantrum i on either side um when accusations first come up if they won
0: send me off every game no problem i will win this league anyway because my team is a strong team they're worth. we play football even if they send me off we win this league no problem
2: so many journalism courses and the rise of social media what do you think the future holds for sports
3: journalism i well there's one part is I think there are too many journalism courses and I don't think that a lot of them are producing proper journalists I know this is a as an hour as a person who's been an employer on two separate occasions doing an employment process and I know that from certain courses I'm receiving an awful lot of applications which are just nowhere near the caliber you would expect from someone who's gone through between a year and, and three years of training for a for an industry that let, let's not forget is a is a traditional professional industry i think they need to be refined i think people need to be people really need to decide whether journalism is for them or whether it's a dream and they need to be advised as much a dream is good but there is always going to have to have some talent to be able to fulfill it I think there needs to be more vocational training in journalism. I don't think we need to have quite as much emphasis on NCTJ and uh, NC courses, which are the the equivalent professional qualifications for journalists. A lot of people within the industry would disagree. My first editor, Dave King, is, has been high up in these things, and he would disagree for sure. But I I don't believe that you need to have the amount of formal training that you are expected to do for large chunks of news organisations at the moment. I think a lot of it can be taught on the job, and a lot of it needs to be learned on the job. To be honest, that reflects my personal opinions on degrees in general. I think that we have to understand the difference between citizen journalism and professional journalism and understand that professional journalism has a huge place because there is rigour and there's practice and there's protocol to go through for these things. Whereas a citizen journalist can be a little faster and looser and can find themselves, well, maybe even a little less under the jurisdiction of the law because of being a citizen journalist, but you still have to, you have to play the play it by the book. You must do the job correctly. So I would think that journalism going forwards has a challenge to compete, compete with one, the commercial pressures of the internet, uh, how it funds itself. We we see currently a lot of uh, a lot of websites are now starting to earn more in commercial revenue than, than their uh, than their print cousins. Mail is an is an example, and I believe the Guardian is starting to do that as well. Um, we're going to have to look at how we paywall stuff. Whether that means going to micro paywalls and paying per article rather than asking a generation who don't really sign up to monthly subscriptions to do monthly subscriptions. I think we have to learn how to adapt to technology. I think this whole idea of pivoting to video, which was a major thing for the last five years, was grossly misplaced and led by a a naive understanding of of how videos are viewed and what constitutes video viewing online. Um, I think we have to use social media within our reporting better and more often. We have to convince people that journalists are not only truthful, but they're trustworthy. Um, And that comes by rooting out the rotten eggs and making an example of them. I think that we have to make sure that journalism has a huge part in any function of keeping a powerful body to account. That could be the government, as it is at the moment. It could be FIFA. It could be Swindon Town. It is levels of power, but each of them matter to certain groups of people. And without people whose job it is to keep these people to account, they will not be kept to account because citizen journalism or fundraising, you know, know, a crowdfunding initiative for citizen journalism or even for professional journalism can only go so far. We have to find a way as a society for journalists to become trustworthy. And again, because we appreciate the journalists for whatever reason, and it doesn't help that some of the most powerful people in the world are portraying them as devils or demons, are not trusted anywhere near as much as they should be. And in the large majority of instances are not trusted anywhere near as much as they deserve to be. That has to be amended. Sports journalism is just as important to a lot of people as news journalism, even though in reality, let's face it, it's not, and sports is not as important as news. So we have to follow the footsteps of whatever the general trend is for, for journalists, which is be more be more trustworthy, regain respect, look at technology, interpret it into the industry as best we can, learn to code, learn to develop, use social media in a in a way that engages your audience and keeps them coming back, particularly amongst the youngest age group, as in don't just rely on Twitter and Facebook, because eventually those two things will just become cesspits and the young will go into somewhere completely different and make sure that people are still reading, you know? How sad would it be if, if journalism was allowed to die out and people just were not reading about the news anymore? It's so it's so important to not think that we're just the purveyors of truth and that other people's opinions of us matter. Well, once we realise that properly, or once the industry as a whole realises that properly, then maybe we can start taking strides to, to go forwards. I mean, personally... I think sports journalism should not die out. It shouldn't change in any way. It should have this balance that it's trying to manage between uh, those who are paid to do it and those who do it as a hobby. Um, But ultimately, professional journalists do good much, much more than they do bad. And it would be a huge pity for people to forget that.
2: Let's go back into the light-hearted Side of questioning now, what are the best and worst press facilities in the lower leagues? The best and the
3: worst press facilities in the lower leagues. Oh, what are we counting as lower league here, Rick? I would say let's not not forget we've had likes of Southampton and Leeds.
2: Well, in League One, hey, let's go League One downwards, regardless of how big the teams have been. Okay.
3: Um, Southampton's was it was fantastic. It's fantastic. I've been there on a couple of occasions, notably Charlie Austin's goal. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and uh and also the night where the Adler had to do Sabutio. Do you remember yeah, that? We, yeah. We, uh, yeah, yeah. Big Vince Paracard scored a couple that day, I think. But they are they they're really good. they you know, it's it was a stadium built in uh, two thousand and two, three ish. You know, it's a modern stadium um, it, it's got good food facilities, which we, we can't uh, fail to point out is a major part in any journalist's routine of the ground. It's quite high-tech in, in that it's got screens around the place uh, in the press area. And MK Dons is actually reasonably good too. Again, it's a modern stadium. I hate to say it, but theirs is quite decent. Um, what else do we have? Oh, I mean, there, there are there are different places where you enjoy your your uh, brief time because of the people more than um, necessarily facilities on offer so for instance oldham we go to oldham and it's freezing as we know boundary park is freezing uh, and they have got a narrow press box behind glass much like in that sense uh, with pillars in the way, so you can only see half of the penalty area, which is never good when you're trying to rock to live blog and like that. Um, and their their seats were covered in fox hair as well. When we when we got up there, to uh, on more than one occasion. But the people there are lovely. The, um, the people around the um, and they're they're always very very uh generous with their time if you if you need to ask some questions and. Um, And always very courteous and happy. And and I found this a lot with going up to clubs in the north, that they were always very different uh, people who were involved in the running of the match day experience in terms of their attitudes. They were were much much jovial and good humoured, and uh, were a a lot less um, strict. And you know, being that being that general in a high vis that barks orders at you, even though really all the job is is to guide you into a parking space um which is the experience that i got a lot more um southern grounds i don't know whether that's a thing between north and south but there there are there are different ways that people treat treat the media in that respect too i really don't like the western homes community stadium i don't think it's called that anymore but colchester's home ground is by far the worst place that i've been to and i might not even be thinking just about sport in that um it i mean anyone who's been there will know what i mean you don't build a new stadium and leave four corners out because it just lets the wind in it's so cold and the wi-fi never worked and then it rained on the laptop because we're about four rows back and uh I mean, they, they did give you food, to be fair. And Matt Hudson, who's the, the media and communications guy there, is is one of the better uh, media and communications guys in the lower half of the football league. But it's just one of those places you, you remember as you dreading going because of what you knew you were going to sit through for two hours. freezing cold. It, didn't, it doesn't matter how many pairs of socks you wore, you'd still have frostbite in your toes at the end of it. So that was, a, that was definitely a negative you know, I struggle to have a real go at lower league clubs if their press facilities aren't that great because a lot of them don't have the money to put into that mm-hmm. And to be quite honest, a lot of them did a lot better than Swindon. But let's not forget that Marion and Keith in the in the uh, in the Swindon press room paid out of their own pocket to provide sandwiches and crisps for for members of the media for a period while I was there. That mm-hmm. was it was just not provided by the club. So you know, they did a really good job in the circumstances, even if we were put into a reconditioned shed, which for the first couple of weeks had a leak in the top and half the lights didn't work, you know. Um, this was a move that was made, I can't remember exactly when, but we were kicked out of the very nice uh, the nice sort of suite area, which was then turned into another sponsor's room in the uh, stand hmm. and down, in, down into the former groundsman's shed at the bottom corner of the Arkles. But Marion and Keith did a great job, and, and obviously those who worked in the in the communications department did their best to try and make it as easy as possible. But Swindon's was among, particularly for a club of its size, was among among the worst in the league. Um, so I find it hard to to criticise others too much. General thing: well, the amount of money that they have, most clubs do pretty well. Oh, and also have the cottage pie at Shrewsbury. There we go.
2: You don't have to tell me twice. <laughs>
0: It's a grand old team to play for It's a grand old team to see
2: Who was your favourite town manager that you interviewed during your time covering Swindon, and who was the worst? And did you ever talk to Paul Hart?
3: Are you really going to ask me who was my favourite town manager <laughs> to interview at the time that I was there?
1: <laughs> really don't have a the question.
3: Um, well, I think we know the answer to that. Don't we? Mm. Paolo Di Canio, because he didn't stop talking, and you could ask him a question fairly basic question it, it might be to do with form or to do with team shape or whatever and then 15 minutes he would be finishing with a curious analogy about small dogs you know it's, it, he uh, he was just an absolutely remarkable person to to be around in those situations um and uh, i i will never i don't think i'll ever top that of anyone that i interview because simply some of the absurdities that he would talk about um I mean, we had to save him on a few occasions. There was one particular occasion I remember where he went off on an absolute rant against Lou Macari, um, which we eventually we didn't publish because we, we, would, we sort of had a conversation between, uh, between those of us who were in the media at the time about how beneficial this would actually be to anybody. Mm-hmm. We weren't sure that Paolo had really understood what we were talking about. I think I think Lou had written something in in maybe the Stokes Sentinel um, It might have even been in the build-up to that game up there in the the, uh, cup. uh, cup. I'm not entirely sure. I I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, whatever it was and whatever the comment was, Paolo had become really incensed and he made some really quite pointed remarks about Macari. And obviously, you would probably rate
2: Macari the, the
3: third best manager in the club's history second best manager yes, third best.
2: Uh, Williams, Hodel, Macari in any order that depending on how old you are I think isn't it? Exactly yeah mm. um, and it just it
3: didn't make any sense for us to actually publish that this is one of the one of the uh, one of the occasions where journalists do have a sort of sense about what they're publishing and whether it's actually of any use um, it didn't really portray Ducanio in any way politically it, it just sounded uh, bitter mm. um, so he had a he had a habit of going off on, on a flyer on this and we've seen on many other occasions whether it was I don't know, Steve Evans or uh, whether he was talking about Leon Clark or whatever and I, he liked to go off on these flyers um, and no one could talk quite like him I mean it was crap because transcribing which is journalist's worst nightmare it's the worst part of the job um, writing like tapping out quotes after you've had an interview particularly if the interview's gone on a long time uh, if it's gone on a long time and the guy only sort of speaks coherent English and you've got to sort of turn it into something that people will understand, then it becomes even more of a chore. So that side wasn't great. But when you eventually did churn out what he'd spoken about, it was these great swathes of mind burp, basically, from from a guy who's experienced a lot in football um, and obviously has a lot to say about politically so no one has come even close to him in terms of the entertainment level of interviewing as a manager at swindon in terms of the work the what did you say the worst
2: that's correct that yeah.
3: I, the worst manager that i've interviewed there um well you asked whether i had spoken to paul hart i was there doing the uh, interviews on the day that paul hart was formally unveiled and i was there too at hillsborough when he gave one of the most ridiculous post-match interviews and, uh, that I've ever heard to uh, Vic Morgan when Vic was at BBC Wiltshire, um, and he he was certainly up there. I, I I didn't think that he fitted the role. I didn't think he got a proper brief. Uh, I didn't think that he really. I mean, partly didn't feel like he really wanted to be there. I mean, he must have wanted to be there. He took the job. But um, he was a very a very difficult man in that instance. I mean, I've heard other conversations about him and and that it's a very different guy. And that's the thing about football management is that one manager can be a completely different character in one job to the next because of the environment that they're in, because of the state of the team, because of the form of the team. And it just wasn't right for him there, but he just, he didn't fit it properly. Did he He was, and he was hard to interview um, in a difficult situation. Managers shut up shop. He shut up shop. And then he, Backlashed. um and it just it just wasn't an enjoyable experience working the very little that i did with him um all, all the rest of them i mean they all had plenty of positives about them um some were more open to conversation outside of you know your traditional press conference than others um but I, I don't have too many bad words to say. Paul Hart was, was the worst purely because he was found himself in a, in a bad situation and I don't think he dealt with that situation well at all. Um, but I've had players who have been very tough to interview, <clears throat> but really tough to interview, but not, I don't, think, I don't think I've had a manager that's got anywhere near someone Well,
2: let's go down that road then now. So the next question is, who has been the most difficult Swindon player to interview? Who are the best to talk to as well?
3: Joe De Vera was a very difficult man to interview. He was a man of few words. And when you're trying to fill a lot of pages, in, well, contextually, con- pages, five pages or whatever for a, for a Monday paper, you kind of need, if, if the club only put one player up for interview, then he needs to be able to say more than four sentences because it doesn't really fill a, a page. Um, and I remember, I remember Joe being very difficult. Aidan Flint, not now. It's, it's remarkable, actually, how different he is now. But I remember Aidan Flint's first interview after he joined from Alfreton, And we were sat up in that old luxury media room in, in the Arkles. And he was... It was like he was in a Swedish sauna. He was sweating profusely. I, it, was, it seemed like he was very uncomfortable with the situation. I, I mean, I guess I can understand. He would have been maybe 21 ish, 2021 coming from non-league and into, into the league situation. He was finding it very hard to get more than a couple of words out for each answer. And you sort of find that with a club like Swindon who, who does bring in, uh, bring up either younger players or players who have come from non-league and aren't necessarily used to dealing with media or whatever. You, you sort of have a, a two-way street where you have to coax them into answering questions. You have to give them a, a little helpful nudge um, and you are almost like you're teaching them how to deal with the media. So I remember that interview being very difficult. Obviously, Aiden turned into being a fantastic interviewee, and he's given it he gave rise to well, a Bristol City meme that's that they're going to love for the rest of time with their no, no, no. But he he, uh, he started off being ver- really quite introverted and shy in front of the media. Anyway, but. Of all of them, I, I found the person the most difficult to deal with was Jonathan Douglas. I was uh, I was a cub reporter as it was 2000 and 2009, so I was only a few months in, and I just found him very standoffish, unwilling to engage. And of course, it's his prerogative, where if he wants to be like that. I just I always remember the the way in which he would react to me wanting to ask a question uh, back in the days where it was just standard practice to to try and grab a player on their way to the bus after a game just always always felt like he was being rude dismissive a bit arrogant um and for a player who's so who was so talented and was such a huge part of that season it was it felt really disappointing and particularly as a cub reporter when you think well what am i actually doing wrong what why is he giving me this cold shoulder um that was always uh, that was always tricky, and I think think he was probably he was probably among the hardest, if not the the hardest to, to deal with. Um, a lot of them were really good, though. I mean, I'm a fairy Ferry was always a joy, um, as everyone knows, as you know, and he's been on your show, and I think he's coming back as me. He's coming back as yes. as well. yes. Yeah, um, he's he was a really really fantastic character, um, and of course. A next door neighbour of mine, at one point as well, um, which we tried to tried to hide for a while. Me and me and, uh, and my housemate at the time, uh, and he did find out. And I remember him telling me in a press conference that he was going to shit through my letterbox. <laughs> he found out that I was four doors down. Um, thankfully, that's not happened, and I don't think he knows my current address. So I think, I think we're all right. Um, so he was great, a, a number of those uh, in that same team were, were really good. JP McGovern was was really good, open, willing to talk both on and off the record. Uh, Alan McCormack was was really good. Uh, he was quite happy to to have a proper, full, and frank discussion on or off the record about um, about all kinds of things. Um it was that was the sort of important thing about uh, about that team is having the one or two. All the heads, and I think that's what the the reason for that uh, that run to the well, it should have been the league championship in twenty twelve thirteen. If if Power hadn't gone, if Andrew Black hadn't decided to go, um, was the balance of of people who knew how to deal with a football season. And there were lots of them, whether that was Macker or people like Gary Roberts. He just he just knew what to do. Mm. He knew he knew how to to conduct himself on and off the pitch, and it was just a different air to it. And contrast that to the team in fourteen fifteen 15 where you've got quite a lot of, team, of, of players who've been brought up through uh, more recent academies um, where they're taught how to deal with the media. And so everyone is doing it in a, a sort of uniform way and everyone's taught to be nervous and everyone's taught to be backing off from engaging in conversation because the media is portrayed as being this uh, dangerous entity that can take uh, a career more than make a career. Um, I think you noticed a huge difference between that 2012 thirteen squad and that 14 fifteen squad um despite them doing similar similarly well they were are completely different individuals to, to talk to you know i'm i'm trying to think of it now i can't i'm trying to think how many players in that 14 fifteen squad would be willing to to pick up the phone if you called them to have a chat about stuff
1: hmm.
3: um and' I'm, i can't i can't really think of it of many at all but you go 12 13 people would be quite happy just to have a conversation if things needed to be talked about or if something needed to be ironed out or if some detail needed to to be confirmed or whatever um then you had those senior players who grew up in a in a different time who had their apprenticeships at a different time and, their, and they had their media training at a different time and and it just made for a much better working environment um not because the people in in 1415 were aggressive or dismissive or anything they just they weren't taught to engage and i think that that's the start of when you lose a connection between a media and a club and then in my opinion you then lose the connection between fans and a club is is the way in which young professionals are taught how to express themselves publicly Um, so there were a lot of players in that 12 thirteen team who were a real joy to be a part of uh, part of that group with um, and that's what it genuinely felt like uh, particularly for instance when we went to, to Italy on, on preseason tour if there were, if I was to say the best a best one of all of them it was probably it was probably Alan McCormack mm-hmm. he, he was pro- mm-hmm. he was probably the the most willing to have a conversation about what he wanted to have a conversation about or if he felt that there was an issue he would iron it out he would come to you um Darren Ward was also quite good actually for that he he was in he was the one who effectively ironed out the the Troy uh Archibald Hemville issue whatever issue that was um because he was you know in his head he knows that just go and talk to them with you know we're just people just like sports journalist is just a person just like a football is a person I think sometimes the two industries forget to do that. Um, but anyway, the answer is the worst, worst one, probably Jonathan Douglas. The best one, probably Alan McCormick.
2: Over your time covering town, what's the biggest story that you've had to sit on that didn't materialise other than the deadline day three of Bradley Wright-Phillips, Danny Green and Marlon Pack? <laughs> well,
3: yeah, I mean, we didn't really sit on that, did we? <laughs> 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 um you were kind enough to send a couple of questions in advance i looked at this and i was trying to remember and um, honestly the among the bigger stories would was nile ranger <laughs> I, I didn't sit on it for two days uh which we all forget about that and it obviously caused an issue at the end of it um but there are some stories that come to pass some that don't um i, I don't think that i ever didn't I didn't report a story that I felt was, was newsworthy and was in the, in the public interest of, of the sports in town. And if, you, if you're sitting on a story that doesn't come to pass and it's not really a story, is it? Because it, it never happened. So it's a tricky question. I do understand the question, but I, I don't think that there's anything that is particularly notable that fits into that criteria, if I'm honest. Sure.
2: As a fan, is there anyone from your time covering Swindon that you would like to see return to the club? Um, and I guess that's either boardroom or playing I suppose
3: Andrew Black
2: mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> <laughs> can Andrew Black rediscover uh, well I tell you what can Andrew Black make up with Jeremy Ray um, first of all and then can Andrew Black suddenly realise that he has an absolute passion for football Is to see his beloved Swin Town get into well let's start with League One shall we yeah. and then go from there um yeah, I mean, well, I, I, if it was if it was anyone, then yes, it would probably be him. He's a man with with money, who was a generous man with money, a good man, um, with reasonably good people around him, um, and someone who almost made something very special happen at Swindon. And it was him uh, that did that. It was his money that did that. So, yes, if if I could bring back anyone, it would be Andrew Black. Glad-
2: was there a town player that you rooted for? Perhaps they weren't fans' favourites, they faced unfair derision from the stands, but you looked around and went, go on.
3: Wild story. Yeah. Um, I think, obviously, when he first came in, I think he had a lot of backing from the fans, but I think as time went on, he uh, he lost that um, a little bit. But he is a genuinely decent man, who, a real family guy from the West Midlands, who went out to look for the best opportunity he could to progress his career. Um, and I, I've not met a more polite footballer than him. Um, someone who... A young, a younger player, but also one that understood the relationship with the media. A lovely family. He was uh, just a really... An all round good egg. And when things started to not go well and people started to... Uh, to turn against him a little bit or mock him or whatever, then that was uh, always felt a bit a bit bad for him there. That's one that comes to mind immediately. I'm sure there are many others. I mean, the, if, the thing is, when you get to know your players a little bit on the side and then you see what kind of reaction sometimes they can get from, from even their own fans, uh, even if the fans' frustration is understandable, it's always quite hard to see because... Those who do let you in on a personal level, you get to know on a personal level and therefore you understand that they're just a bloke trying to do their job and they're not going out there to deliberately play badly.
1: Mm.
3: So you do sort of, you sort of feel that when there's a, a run of bad results and you know that the guys are just trying their best uh, and it's just not working. And even It's more collectively necessarily than individually. Uh, you sort of, you feel bad for them. I don't think there are many other any other walks of life where it's that public uh, a vilification or that public a judgment on a regular basis. I mean, perhaps politicians may be quite similar, but sports people are right up there in terms of having their entire life played out in public. And you can really, you can really sense it when they're starting to struggle and you want them to do well. And many times, even if as a fan, I was frustrated as the next man or the next woman, with the performance of the team you'd always want them to do well because most of them are just genuinely decent human beings trying to do a job
2: at one stage uh, the advertiser message boards were getting posts by somebody with the username of freddy um who was seemingly providing information regarding behind the scenes at the club what was it like working through the freddy saga well,
3: It was interesting wasn't it um i
2: mean the
3: Freddie posted a lot of stuff that was quite flammable <laughs> on, on that message board. Um, I wish that I'd got to meet him or her. There was one one time where I got, a, I got an invitation to meet him or her, in theory, um, and I didn't get, in, in the end, didn't get the opportunity to. But, I mean, you've got to try to follow up where best you can. These posts that are getting made because... They contain quite a lot of detailed personal information. I was fascinated that they weren't picked up on from a legal perspective by the individuals who were who were going after them. I mean, you might say that there's some sort of um, of truth in in parts of of what he or she was saying, but you know that added, it just it added to the whole situation. Um, I think some parts of what. Freddie said, "Probably I should have chased up more. And some parts I think were not so relevant. But you know, what was it like covering the club in that time? Is just the same as what it was like covering the club with all of that craziness going on. I mean, it didn't it didn't make it better or worse that these posts were being made. I wish that I'd, I wish that uh, I'd met whoever it was that was behind them. But that's that's all that I. I mean, maybe, maybe I have. You know, we always know that Freddie is a is a anagram of fired. We don't, that's might be something to do with it. I don't know. Maybe I have met them. Maybe I've met them since and don't, I didn't know that i would met them, but uh, that's the only thing that sticks out for me. If if I met them, then maybe I'd have been able to validate what they were saying and been able to, to move on with more of it. But if you can't validate a claim, then it's quite hard to run something from a legal perspective. And I did, I did try to get in touch with Freddie mm-hmm. uh, and, Failed, effectively.
2: You mentioned the Troy Archibald-Henville Hen Henville thing. Could you be so kind in retelling that episode?
3: Yeah, I don't think it's really much of an episode, though, is it? I mean, we're talking about a tweet, yeah. really. Like, I think it came after uh, I ran a story about Troy and a potential loan move out of the club, um, I think. And from what I remember, there was a stickling point of... The, the move which revolved around a percentage of his wages and therefore it appears you know quite pressing that the public were made aware of what his wages were because then you know it's, it's a relative part of the story um, you can understand then why someone wouldn't be willing to pay or whatever so I quoted his wages I think it was three grand a week I think at the time which it was because I had the information from a source which made it uh, infallible, effectively. Uh, and uh, Troy didn't take kindly to having his wage published. Well, I mean, uh, in one sense, I can understand it, maybe, but at the same time, footballers have their wages published all the time. And just because you're lower down the pyramid particularly when it's a story that is actually directly related to it. I don't think you should be expected for it not to come out if, if someone can find the information. Uh, anyway, that's my perspective. Uh, he did, he took, he took exception to that and, um, uh, made a comment about me being a podgy fucking clown on, i received joyfully on a saturday a saturday or sunday afternoon or something like that um while i was at, at my in-laws i remember um and eventually it was diffused by yeah i remember having a chat with darren moore in the car park about it i said diffused i never felt that it was even infused with anything at any point i, I felt it was quite a petulant remark that it wasn't really necessary and if i if I'd been derogatory about his body shape, or, you know, or body type, or whatever, how would that have gone down on social media? But I'm a little bit thicker-skinned than that, as you have to be when when <laughs> when you're of my size, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, it was it was a strange episode, but yeah, episode. I'm not sure, mini episode.
2: What was it like competing with the advertiser BBC and Flick for the attentions of one? League One Football Club during your total Swindon venture. And were you disappointed with how that panned out or was it a risk worth taking?
3: This was one's, this one's actually really interesting because, yes, I was disappointed with how it panned out, but yes, it was a risk worth taking. I don't think the two are mutually... The reason that Andy Warren and I left the ABBA, uh was because NewsQuest and Gannett, who own NewsQuest, uh, were not giving us the tools with which we believed that we needed to do our, our job at the time, um, be that equipment, such as laptops. Um, we were using our own and not getting company company property. Uh, we didn't, at that time, have, for instance, a, a car, a company car to drive us around for, uh, just to go down to press conferences. We had to, um, I think we had to park in the local uh car park, you know, the pay and display um opposite BBC Wiltshire
1: mm.
3: and pay for that off our own back uh, so that we could get in a car and quickly drive down somewhere if something was happening. Or we have to five miles away and then run down on foot or whatever. You know, we were we weren't being given the equipment um that we needed. We had out, there were some outdated laptops. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't say there are no laptops. There was outdated laptops which are outdated when I joined the company in two thousand and nine using Wi Fi connections which were i mean five years out of date already and i don't know how you get five years out of date wi-fi in 2009 but they did and we wanted to do things digitally which we just simply felt we weren't able to do and we had a backer in james phipps who well, i said that he came to us and he, he was looking for us to to set something up and, and do something different and we felt we had a real opportunity to change the uh sports journalism landscape of of the town and to try and pursue something that was more proactive, that was digital first, that more people could relate to. Um, and that wasn't tired in, in the way it went about its work. And we felt that we did. And to be honest, if you look at the, if you look at the figures we did within the, within a year, we'd got to 80% of the sports traffic of the advert from a startup website staffed by two people. You know, we, we did, we just, You know, couldn't sell the advertising into it, or sales couldn't sell the advertising into it that needed it needed to make it continue. Um, I can understand that because there was the advert and there was flick, and in a congested marketplace, that's quite a lot of uh, of brands looking for backing for what's effectively the same coverage. That's not to say that I felt that what we did was was a failure, or or what we did was a A risk that wasn't worth taking because we made a major impact from a startup local, uh, a local journalist startup website in a year. And there was an appetite for it. And there was an appetite for the competition. Not only was there an appetite for the competition, it made everyone else want to compete more. And that only makes your, uh, your local community get more information faster. And that's good. It failed because we didn't get the advertising revenue or the sponsorship revenue that we needed to to maintain it. And it's sad that that's the case, but I can understand why it happened in the modern commercial environment, particularly for local newspapers and local media. But it was a really enjoyable experience, and I think I think that looking back on it for the for those eighteen months that the four media outlets operated against each other, I would hope that the people of Swindon the People of Swindon Town really noticed the difference of having multiple outlets all gunning for their clicks. I don't know whether you felt that was the case rich from a personal point of view, but it's um, it felt it felt like it to me that they were getting more content, more diversity uh, and that it, it was an enjoyable time to to be following a club in a lower
2: league i um completely agree to be honest it felt like I, how I imagine. Big Premiership teams, their supporters uh, are treated yeah. because they've got various sources.
3: Well, that's what we wanted to do at the advert. That was the whole thing with this: is we wanted to create that sort of digital uh, content at the advertiser um, and to take the advertiser forward and to offer a, a new way of covering a club locally uh, that wasn't just reliant on old methods in terms of fill a back page and an inside page on a day and then put all those stories up at six o'clock in the morning. Mm on the website. We wanted to do something different, and we simply did not have the tools to do it. We weren't given the opportunity to do it. Even even though there were people at the advert who would have wanted it to happen, people like Gary Lawrence, who's a fantastic editor, um, people like Steve Buck, Craig Lyas, obviously Andy, who wanted it to happen, we weren't given the tools, and we weren't given the resource to be able to do it, and that's why we went off and we wanted to do it somewhere else. And I don't regret it for a second, because I think that we also, Woke the advert up into what they what they had to do digitally. And I think the in us going across and doing something new made them reevaluate their digital output, and I think that has been a knock on effect. through right from then through to today it started that chain of chain of events which led to them starting to think about how they cover the club in a new way for for the twenty first one, the twenty first century. Um, at least the 2010s so yeah it was it was a really worthwhile initiative and it was a shame it didn't last longer but uh, it was a lot of fun while it did
1: now ferry to the byline devita they have turned it around simon ferry to the byline and he had the presence of mind to pick out rafael
2: devita Somehow we're already an hour and quarter into this, so we'll do some quick-fire ones. Um, were there any other potential consortiums that came close to uh, beating Jed uh, to purchasing the club in 2013? No. <laughs> Did you know who the prospective buyer was who passed away? No. Did the pros of Paolo De outweigh the negatives? Uh, yeah,
3: absolutely. I mean, he was... Uh, well, as much as you can say, how much can outweigh someone who's who ideologically uh is not exactly the kind of guy that you would want to to be around. But um I'm talking from my perspective here, so mm. I'm, I'm mm. not talking from anyone else's perspective. He was he was a man generous generous with his time and with his money, as I talked before about him buying us dinner as a surprise at Lake Garda. He was. He was relatively courteous when he wasn't four hours late for a press conference. He was, he was a, a genuinely enthusiastic man who was willing to speak the truth about what he felt. Um, and you know, he, I fundamentally disagree with his politics, and I've said this when I was on you on your show before. But I, as as a as a one man to another, I I found him personable, amiable, courteous, um, and. Absolutely riveting, so I, yeah, definitely for me. Yes,
2: and what was the best (laughs) performance you saw town play whilst covering them? And it's an add on to that. What is it like watching the club you support as a job and having to be professional during games? Did you feel you lost some of the enjoyment having to strip yourself of the emotion somewhat? were there any games where you wished you were in the stands, experienced them as a fan?
3: Yeah. Um, yes, uh, definitely does strip a little bit back. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've told you before about the struggles uh, sometimes in these ishi- incidents of uh, of trying to keep a, a lid on your emotions, mm. um, you know, such as giving Andy Warren a great big kiss on the top of the head when Aiden Flynn scored in in, uh, in added time at Brentford. Um, uh, I would I would love to have been in in the away end when he scored that, but at the same time I'm not sure I would have wanted to be in the away end at the end of the end of the parties. So I mm. uh, just I would love to have been in the away end at at Stoke. I would love I would love to have been in the in the in the stands at the County Ground in uh, for that five five in a way, which by the way is the worst game that I've ever covered as a journalist um, for the sheer number of rewrites in a short space of time, but. I think that more of the games that I would like to have been involved with the fans would have been the away ones. There's something special isn't there about going away and seeing a, a really memorable result. Um, I remember my first away day vividly with my dad. And I remember my first away defeat vividly with my dad because uh, that was up at Everton when we had a, Ian Culverhouse sent off after 52 seconds. Mm-hmm. But you just remember those those days, you just seem to remember really, really clearly and there's a lot of emotion about them and when you have a when you have a really good day away from home then I think it leaves an even bigger imprint than when you have a really good day at home hmm. so I think there are all sorts of those like, for instance that Charlie Austin goal at Southampton uh, that would have been great I was lucky enough to actually be in the in the away end at Ellen Road hmm. when, when we did them 3-0 and that was, that was a great day there, there's, all sorts, there's all sorts like that. Um, best performance? Oh, you know what? That's, there's so many. I, it's, they, they played so much good football under uh, both under De Canio in 12-13 and uh, in the first half of 14-15. Um, and it's really hard to know because in, in, different, in different games it requires a different kind of performance. Um, I really, really enjoyed the second half against Portsmouth on New Year's Day in 2013. I I mean, that's the only time I've ever given a player 10 out of 10 in a player ratings, I think, for for James Collins. I don't don't think I've ever given 10 out of 10 otherwise. That was just a phenomenal performance. So was when they did Tranmere when Tranmere were top of the league. And and Matt Ritchie just ripped them a new one um, on a Friday night under the lights and just completely destroyed them that year. And that was around at the same time of the year. I think I think over that Christmas, we scored more goals than Barcelona or more goals than anyone in, in Europe. Um, and that period was fantastic. But also, beating Preston 1-0, beating Bristol City 1-0 and, and Nathan Thompson jumping up and down like he was an out-of-control dragon. That was amazing to be part of that atmosphere. Yeah. Even the performance against Aston Villa had come back from 2-0 down to be level 2-2 just until the last, the last five minutes and to have someone who in that instance mild story you know probably come, come up and score two goals as a kid um, against a Premier League team I mean there were so many good games they played so well on so many occasions they also played dreadfully on, on many occasions <laughs> but it's just I love I love this when I'm allowed to just think about it because there were so many great days and there were so many dreadful ones like going to Scunthorpe and getting absolutely sick or going to Preston and having the goalkeeper hauled off after 22 minutes. So, you know, any game in 2010-11, you know, I, it, it's, there's, there are some really terrible days, but you try not to remember it because that's not what the fun is. I don't think I could pick one out, Rich. There, I had so many day, good days covering that club.
0: Um, and I, I
3: love thinking about all of them again when I get the point.
0: It's Gladwell!
2: Podcast talking about current town events um, it seems based on a few things that you read on social media through the trust that some big news could be on its way relating to the trust and the co-ownership of the county ground um, can this relationship realistically work or should the trust insist on having a boardroom presence
3: I, I think yes it can I'm not sure it can with the current uh, owner mm-hmm. but I think I think yes it can. And ultimately, I think all football clubs, particularly those at lower level, should uh, encourage their trust to have a boardroom presence if it works for the club, um, and particularly in this instance where the trust would be putting in financially. I think it deserves a place in some in some capacity uh, on the board. I mean, I don't I'm not privy to the intimate details of these discussions anymore. My uh, my relationship with the trust now is one of a a, a member and that's it. I I don't do their PR. Um, I don't run their website, but I know the people involved. I know they're good, good uh, men and women. And I know that they have the club's best interests at heart. So I would trust them in their evaluation of the situation. That said, I don't trust Lee Power and I, I don't trust him as an owner. So, you know, for me personally, there's, the two don't marry up quite as neatly as maybe I'd like, but, you know, Steve Mighton and James Phipps, have, uh, Rob Angus have been involved in these conversations for a long time. And they're thorough, thorough gentlemen with an understanding of both the club and business, um, and how the power thinks as well. So I'm quite happy to trust them. And I would, uh, I would urge supporters to trust them too. Um, I think it is positive that the club owns its own ground, and it's positive that the trust can act as some kind of safeguard over what happens with the ground should the club own it. So, in terms of the future development of Swindon Town from a from a off the field perspective, uh, I back what's going on with a hint of trepidation. I mean, I'd much prefer it that there was someone else who owned the club and that this was happening. That this, that this is happening, I believe, is a good
2: thing. You alluded to in the previous podcast to not understanding Lee Power's motivations for owning the club. There have been suggestions in the last uh, few weeks and months that he has interest payable of director loans, and also that is that this is purely a real estate venture for him. If you were to speculate, what do you think the most likely motivations for Power are?
3: it's very hard for me to speculate on this rich from a legal position <laughs> like, uh, i i don't, i don't want to stick myself in it i mean i've got my views and those who've had conversations <laughs> with me in private um will know those views uh, and those people who've seen previous business ventures involving the current owner of the club will, will understand those views and i'm sure there are other elements to it um you know, he is—he is a former footballer. He obviously does enjoy taking a front seat in the running of a football club. He's done it on several different occasions, um, none with a great deal of success for the football club, um, unfortunately. I—I um, I still don't 100% know what his main motivation is for owning Swindon Town, but you know, it could be one of several things but I'm not about to uh, slander myself. <laughs> do, you, so.
2: do you think with Clem for Mooney's um, increase in presence, with Axis and with the Australian interest, do you think there could be an exit strategy for power?
3: I mean, it does look like it, doesn't it? I don't know. I don't know, but it does, it does look like it. It's a, it doesn't look like the same owner of four years ago um, in well, terms of his hands-on dealings with the club um he still has the conversations that he needs to obviously with the bbc and he may well be involved in, in some day-to-day operations but it does seem that clem Morfuni is taking a much more front seat role uh, and being the one who is the is the liaison between fiat be media and club or uh between the class and the club for instance uh, and i saw that that both clem and uh, mark isaacs attended a recent uh, board meeting, which is good. I mean, that's a really positive thing. So if there is an exit strategy, it makes sense. What doesn't make sense for me is the timing, particularly given the planning application that's been approved for training ground facilities, 12 Oaks, and and what can happen up there and the planning that involves things which sort of make sense uh, from Power's business perspective in terms of, real estate ventures up there and stables and holiday homes and stuff like that. So I I don't, I don't see him leaving his role imminently. I don't see him selling up imminently. I don't know what his actual role is going to be going forwards beyond owning the club. But, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't make sense for him to, or him or the club to start making progress when it comes to the training ground and when it comes to the stadium and for them for him to leave, you can't I, I don't think anyone would buy the club with the planning permissions he needs to get the, he needs to get the uh, get that training facility built, and then we'll see whether this peppercorn rate that he promised initially actually comes to to fruition and, and indeed who who actually does own what uh, which will be really interesting.
2: final questions now. do you remember that night? in Casper after the Sponsor's dinner?
3: <laughs> That's a
2: Tanswell question. Of course it is.
3: <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, I do remember it. <laughs> do, I, do I need to go anymore? I can't believe Tans has asked that. <laughs> he, he's just trying to stitch me up. Yes, I do remember that question. Uh, that, uh, I, I, somehow I do, despite the amount of, uh, of alcohol that was consumed, I do remember it. In a boxing match, who would win?
2: yourself
3: or Andrew Warren <laughs> is this is this question from Andy Warren I don't think it was actually but um, <laughs> somebody wants to know um, Andy Warren's surprisingly strong um, and he's got a low center of gravity too so I, I think that he would in one sense it's good because he definitely struggled to reach my chin <laughs> but on the other sense he, he could uh, he could take me down with the with a combination to the chest so um let's let's just call it a fury wilder and controversial draw
2: is he as good as uh at mini golf as he has his uh, bravado online suggests
3: he, did, he he was
2: ranked he did <laughs> have a world ranking
3: he had a he had a world
2: ranking until about eighteen months ago
3: um and that's no lie. both him and his brother had a world ranking in terms of mini golf um it was it was somewhere in the low hundreds i think
2: and and finally. It had to come in. What's your favourite takeaway fast food joint in Swindon? <laughs> now, on the proviso that I've um,
3: I've not lived in Swindon now for uh, almost three years, um, my favourite was the local curry house that we went to, which was Rushi in Old Town. I love their curry, but also because they gave me free beer every single time I went in. It was great, even, even if there was no wait for my food. So I was... Uh, I was always very well looked after there.
2: Splendid. Um, I hope to get you on for a hat trick for, as a fan, for your uh, all-time Swindon eleven sometime in the new year. But for now, Sam Moore's head. Thank you very much. Yes, Rich, Thank you. The Low Strangers is an independent Swindon Town fan podcast. The music was expertly created by Matthew Kilford and the podcast artwork is by the super talented John Daglish. Thanks for listening.
1: Come
3: on, Swindon. He was going to shit through my letterbox.
0: The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football.
1: Hi, LS Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy,